Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. The Johnson family should have been home from their summer vacation by now. It was late August in 1982, and it was time to get their two young daughters ready for school. But instead, the family was missing. Bob Johnson and his wife Jackie, and their daughters Karen and Janet, who were 11 and 13, had loaded up their car with camping gear and left their home in Kelowna in British Columbia, Canada, or BC as it's known, to travel to Red Deer, Alberta and visit with friends. Then they were planning to meet up with Jackie's parents, George and Edith Bentley, who'd left their home in Port Coquitlam, BC with a truck and camper, and the six of them were going on a family camping trip in Wellsgrave Provincial Park, near the border between BC and Alberta. The park is over a million acres of pristine wilderness with lush old growth rainforest, cascading waterfalls, and snow-capped mountains. On August 23rd, Bob's friend and co-worker Alan Bonaire returned from his vacation to the lumber mill that they both worked at in Kelowna and discovered that Bob hadn't returned from his vacation. He knew Bob should have been back August 16th, and it wasn't like him to miss work. So he contacted the police, and they issued a tourist alert. Bob's twin sister, Elaine Woods, told the province newspaper, We feel there has to be something gone wrong. It's very unusual that Bob hasn't contacted anybody in the family or at the mill. And since retiring, the Bentley spent much of their time traveling and camping throughout BC. And due to George's health, they kept in touch with family. But no one had heard from them since July 27th. Police held off on ground and air searches as they didn't know where in the park the families had traveled to, or if they'd even met up. Police then learned that the park officials had reported the Bentleys in Wellsgrave Park on August 3rd. But a contract labor dispute between workers and the provincial government meant no records were kept after that date. Then a tip came in from a gas station worker in 150 Mile House, a small town about 60 miles from Wellsgrave Park. He thought he'd served the family's gas on August 15th and that they'd asked directions to a back road. Another tip came in that all six family members had been seen at a camping spot in Wellsgrave Park on that very same day. Police launched an air search using three planes looking for any signs of stranded tents 
and the Johnsons' 1979 beige Caravelle car with a luggage rack on the roof, and the Bentley's new 1981 red and silver Ford pickup with a camper and aluminum boat on the roof. A tip came in from another gas station worker saying Bob and his daughters had asked for directions to a road near Chase. The Bentleys were experienced campers who didn't like crowds and liked to camp in secluded spots and carried a rifle in their truck for protection. It was possible that the two families were camping somewhere off the beaten path. The search area grew to 20,000 square miles. There were few clues and no sightings of the families or their vehicles. On September 12th, the province newspaper reported that RCMP Superintendent Scotty Gardner wondered, did they go over an embankment? But there would be physical evidence of some type. Maybe it was foul play. It's gruesome, but we can't rule it out. However, the killers would have had to drive the vehicles away. And he asked, where are the vehicles? A day later, a short statement was released to the media that the Johnson's car may have been found. And that there are no bodies, alive or dead, just a car. Within a day, that headline would change. There now appeared to be six bodies in a burned-out car. Police had received a tip from an Abbotsford man who'd been picking berries near Clearwater when he spotted a burned-out car. It appeared to have been pushed off a rugged road, 30 feet down an embankment, and set on fire. It was found in an area that had been previously searched, but the torch car was camouflaged by the dense brush and old-growth forest. Tim Padmore from the Vancouver Sun described the scene as a trail of violence leads to a scorched, rust-smeared car body. The tomb of six persons believed to be members of two BC families missing since early August. A granite boulder is scarred by a car's undercarriage. A clump of grass torn up by a tire. A small pine tree uprooted. And at the end of the trail was the devastated remains of the 1979 Plymouth Caravel. The car came to rest in a muddy depression, straddling several fallen trees. A white rooftop carrier vanished in the flames, but its contents did not. Sitting on the roof were two rows of brown bottles fused by the heat. There were a couple of cans on the roof, emptied by the flames. A set of rusty keys dangled from the trunk lock, and on the seats were their remains. Police examined the trail and found the rocks were undisturbed. 
It appeared the car had been purposely and carefully driven there, but no one in the area recalled seeing it. Police believed all six victims were dead before the car was driven to the trail and pushed down the embankment and set on fire. It had burned so hot, the windows and tail lights melted. A pathologist was flown to the site and determined the remains were four adults and two children. The Vancouver Sun reported that in the back seat was a tangle of bones, lumps of charred flesh, and bits of hair. There would be pieces of a skull, perhaps a fragment of rib nearby, pointing to the large bones of arms and legs. From the positions of the larger bones, they had a relatively good idea which body they belonged to but identifying the smaller bones and fragments was largely guesswork. Nearly all the bones were severely damaged by heat, and some would crumble when touched. The body parts were put in white plastic bags, foot parts would go in one bag, an upper torso in another. Each small bag was labeled, then the small bags were packed into the larger bags. There was one large bag for each body. And in the end, there were six. A large truck was brought in to remove the car, its tires wrapped in chains to make it through the dense bush. Using the large crane on the back of the truck, the car was lifted from a steep impression in the mud. The car's rear wheels were melted down to their rims. The trunk was closed, and the front license plate was still attached to the bumper. No camping equipment had been found inside the burned-out car. RCMP Inspector Vic Edwards was optimistic they'd find their murder scene a short distance from the car. He said... The victim's last campsite in Wellsgrave Park could be their death scene. The thorough examination of the remains would take weeks and involved dentists, doctors, anthropologists, chemists, and physicists. X-rays showed metal fragments of zippers and snap fasteners. Some were thought to be bullet fragments. Police released information that one of the six victims found in the back seat had been shot in the head. A reward was established for information leading to the killer or killers. 140 of Bob's co-workers at the mill donated a day's pay and raised over $16,000. Then the owners of the mill matched their donation. Then the public joined in, and the reward reached over $43,000. That was a large sum of money in 1982. Police lacked a motive for the murders, and clues were scarce. Theories bounced around that maybe it was a botched robbery, 
or they'd come across a marijuana growing operation in the bush. Or perhaps they'd returned from berry picking and found thieves in their camp and a confrontation occurred. A few days after the car was found, it was revealed that it was Kurt Crack who had discovered the burnt-out shell. He'd traveled from Abbotsford to Wellsgrey Park and was picking berries when he spotted it. He ran across some horseback riders and told them about the car, but they were unable to find it. So they reported it to police, who sent Park's employees to locate it, but they couldn't find it either. Then on September 2nd, Kurt tried to report the car to the Abbotsford police, but the dispatcher who took his call told him to call the Clearwater police directly. In the early 1980s, long-distance calls were expensive, so Kurt didn't make the call. He was upset they expected him to pay for it. Eventually, Kurt connected with police, and his directions led them straight to the Johnson's car. Meanwhile, the police in North Battleford, Saskatchewan, a small town 650 miles east of Wellsgrave Park, received a tip that the Bentley's truck and camper had been spotted and was being driven by two Frenchmen with accents. Police released composite drawings of the two men. Within a few weeks, they had received 500 tips. On September 24th, a memorial service for Bob Johnson, his wife Jackie, and their daughters Janet and Karen was held at St. Paul's United Church in Kelowna, the same church that Bob and Jackie were married in 21 years earlier. 400 people attended the service. Many were Bob's co-workers who had worked an early shift so that they could attend. His boss and friend Ross Gorman delivered the eulogy and said, We have come here today to show our deep love for this family. A memorial service was held for George and Edith Bentley at the United Church in Surrey. 150 people attended to mourn the loss of a couple married for 36 years. On September 29th, a passenger on a ferry traveling from Vancouver to Victoria spotted two French men that resembled the police sketch. When the ferry docked, police were waiting. They questioned the two men, but they were cleared and released. By the end of October, 1,400 tips had rolled in. Police had gone through 700 of them and had 10 men working full-time on the case. Snow was falling in Wells Gray Park and the tips had grown to 4,000. The coroner positively identified three of the bodies. Grandfather George, his daughter Jackie, and granddaughter Janet. There was a tentative identification on his second granddaughter, Karen. The coroner was unable to positively identify Edith or her son-in-law, Bob. 
Police then came up with the idea to use a truck and camper and boat similar to the Bentleys and drive it across Canada to jog people's memories. Large signs were placed on the truck that stated, The Johnson and Bentley murders in Wells Gray Park. Have you seen a truck and camper similar to this since August 1982? If so, phone your local police. The trip was timed to coincide with the camping season with the hope it would bring new leads. In spring, the truck headed from BC across Canada to Quebec. Within weeks, police received 118 new tips. One in particular looked promising, saying that the truck and camper had been spotted in Quebec. Police investigated, but none of the tips panned out. With no new leads and no answers, the truck and camper headed back to BC. Fourteen months after the murders, four shoe workers discovered the Bentley's burned-out truck and camper. It turned out to be less than 20 miles from where the Johnson's car had been found. It, too, had been camouflaged by the dense bush. Police immediately began canvassing the Clearwater community door-to-door, asking for information. Their big break would come when they spoke to Ross Coburn, who told them about an unrelated case. A couple years earlier, he was in a vehicle being driven by his friend, David Shearing, when David struck a man walking on the road. They fled the scene and never reported it, and the man died from his injuries. Police were able to locate David Shearing in nearby Dawson Creek and use this new information to question him. During the 10 hours of questioning, David surprisingly brought up the Johnson and Bentley murders and by the end of the interview, confessed to killing them. On November 21st, 15 months after the murders, Police arrested David Shearing and charged him with one count of second-degree murder for the death of Edith Bentley. Local residents were shocked that the killer lived among them. David was said to be a shy, timid man. His brother was a sheriff and his father had been a prison guard. He lived with his mother just a mile from the crime scene. Police searched his home and found the murder weapon. Hanging on the wall, a 22 caliber automatic rifle. In his bedroom, they found a tape recorder and camera he'd stolen from the family. The Bentley's aluminum boat and motor was found not far from the murder site. David claimed he'd spotted the truck and camper on his way home from work on August 1st. Later, he went back, crept through the dark woods, and spied on the family. He then returned the next evening to kill them because he wanted their boat and motor. 
He shot the adults first while they were sitting around the campfire. Then he shot the two girls who were sleeping in a nearby tent. He loaded the adults into the back of the car and the girls into the trunk and cleaned up the campsite. He drove the Johnson's car to a hidden spot near his house, then went back to the campsite with the camping gear in the camper and drove it to where he'd parked the car. He returned the next night and set the car on fire using gasoline. A few nights later, he drove the truck a few miles away and did the same thing. Police asked if he had an accomplice, and he told them no. The single murder charge was quickly upgraded to six counts of second-degree murder. David had become a mass murderer at the age of 23. He waived his right to a preliminary hearing and pled guilty to all six murders. While waiting for sentencing, Chief Investigator Mike Eastham had a feeling David wasn't telling the whole truth, and he wanted the truth on record for future parole hearings. So he arranged a meeting with David. A book written by Mike Eastham and Ian McLeod called The Seventh Shadow described Mike's interview with the killer in which the truth finally came out. In David Shearing's words, I got it in my mind that I wanted them. I knew I was going to have to kill those other four to get the girls. He said the kids were in the tent, and either Edith or Jackie saw him first. Then Bob stood up and caught a slug in the throat. He toppled, gurgling. Then the older guy started running back over to the truck, and I shot him next to the passenger side door. The mother of the girls was running for the tent, and I shot her in the head, about halfway between it and the fire. Then I headed around to get the older woman, who was trying to get in the camper. I just came up behind her and shot her in the head, too. Then I went over to the tent and crawled in. He then stated he had to crawl back out to shoot the younger guy again because he was making all this noise. He confessed that he kept the girls alive for six days and sexually assaulted them before killing them. He said he took Karen for a walk on a trail, distracted her, and when she turned and looked away, he took the twenty-two he stashed and shot her in the back of the head. He said he did the same thing to her older sister Janet the next day. He loaded their bodies into the trunk of the car and went home to bed. The next morning, he drove the car with six dead bodies deeper into the bush poured five gallons of fuel inside, and lit a match. On April 17, 1984, David Shearing was sentenced 
to six concurrent terms of life in prison, with no possibility of parole for 25 years. This was the first time in BC's history that the maximum sentence for second-degree murder was handed out. David Shearing did not appeal his conviction or his sentence. In 2008 and 2012, he came up for parole but was denied. He has since withdrawn from requesting parole. As of this recording, he has spent 36 years in prison and is 61 years old. On a personal note, I was genuinely touched by these murders. Growing up in Kelowna, when the Johnson-Bentley families disappeared, our community rallied in the hopes that they were just lost in the bush and would be found safe. But the evil truth that emerged forever changed our community, our city, our province, and our country. Our innocence was lost. But we resolved to not let evil win, and we vowed to never forget them. In 1988, the Johnson and Bentley Memorial Aquatic Center in West Kelowna was built in their memory and still stands today. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of teenager Tyler Hadley, who at 17 wanted to throw a party, but he had to get rid of his parents first. He posted a party invite on Facebook, then killed them with a claw hammer, hid their bodies in the bedroom, and threw a party to die for. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.